Welcome to the DermVet Podcast. I'm Dr. Ashley Bourgeois, a board-certified veterinary dermatologist practicing in Portland, Oregon with animal dermatology clinics. I'm also a mom of two, just trying to find the balance like everyone else. Let's learn to ditch the itch, cytology, everything, and make derm more fun than frustrating. I'm so excited to get back to doing some interviews on the podcast, and we are kicking it off with a topic I get asked a lot about, and I'm so excited to have an episode with another dermatologist talking all about Pseudomonas otitis. Dr. Amelia White is an associate clinical professor at Auburn University and a board-certified veterinary dermatologist. Dr. White does a ton of speaking and educating. She's also a busy mom of two kids, two young boys, and we talk all about the diagnosis of pseudomonas otitis, culture, not to culture, when to culture, what flushes, ingredients we should consider using, topical treatment, and systemic treatment. I really hope you enjoy this episode of the DermVet Podcast. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of the DermVet Podcast, and I am so excited to have our guest on today. Um, We've actually been trying to do this for a long time, and I know that I haven't been able to do as many interview-type podcast episodes last year, but I'm definitely excited to get back to it because it's one of my favorite things to do because I love Derm so much, and I love to see what other people are doing, and we all practice differently, which I think is frustrating probably for a lot of you general practitioners, but very exciting just to know there's not always one right answer. Even us as specialists are going to do things differently. So myself and my guest today have been trying to set this up for a long time, but being two busy working moms of two kids, um, it has had its challenges, but we have finally made it work. And so I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Amelia White, who is an associate clinical professor at Auburn University and a board certified uh, dermatologist. So Dr. White, thank you so much for coming on the DermVet podcast. It's my pleasure. I'm so excited, like you said, that we finally are able to do this. I've been looking forward to it and I'm just really excited to share some thoughts back and forth together and hopefully help other people out with a super frustrating condition, pseudomonas and ears. Yes, I was really excited when I kind of said, here's a few topics we could talk about. And you're pretty open to talking about pseudomonas otitis because I do think you know, when I lecture, I always think ears and cats are the things that people get really, (laughs) really excited about to learn because there's so many limitations to it. And pseudomonas otitis is, I think, truly one of the more challenging things that we deal with. So I'm hoping that we can kind of shed some light over the things that we really think about when we're treating these cases and the different options that are out there. So kind of just jumping into it, and I know this is a pretty wide open question, but what are the typical clinical signs that you feel like you see a case and right on your radar, you're thinking, ooh, I wonder if this is a pseudomonas otitis? Yeah, I mean, that's a great question, Ashley. You know, I think probably most people out there are already shouting it out in their cars or wherever they're listening from. But, you know, pseudomonas really is torturous to the ear canal. It has a lot of virulence factors. We think a lot about the biofilm component and the fact that these pseudomonas ears are painful, painful, painful. So, you know, our nose, our sense of smell really helps us out with pseudomonas. It does have that really rancid, pungent smell, but, you know, maybe it's not so much that it's the bacteria that we're, we're smelling, but the consequences of it being there, right? The ulceration in the ear canals, that perulent exudate, 
the discomfort, the bleeding, the biofilms, and the necrosis of the tissue will take on its own unique odor as well. And so we, I do think, you know, when it comes to pseudomonas, we do see ears being quite painful, quite dramatic in how they look. And then the biofilm is really key. We see biofilms with all kinds of organisms, even yeast make biofilms. The pseudomonas, it's, I think the numbers are something like around 40% of pseudomonas cases are um, going to have a biofilm. And biofilm's that virulence factor that really helps it be sneaky, hides out in that biofilm. It makes it impossible to treat, um, you know, that it raises up that MIC a pretty good bit. So it makes it hard for our antibiotics to really work. But yeah, certainly so. Looking, smelling, seeing, there's a lot of clues for pseudomonas. Yeah, we've all been hit in the face with that smell when you barely walk into an exam room. I had this, like, I think a week ago with a bulldog with terrible bilateral disease in the ear canals, and you barely walk in and you're, like, punched in the face with that (laughs) odor where you're like, oh, maybe I should leave the exam room door open. Like, this is pretty bad. Um, And, of course, you know, though we do get hints of it, um, we always want to be doing our diagnostics and cytologies to kind of look in, look at what's actually under the microscope, kind of like when I say yeast, you know, we can smell like corn chips, but we still got to look under the microscope. Um, but we can get a very heavy suspicion just based on some of that odor, those changes that you mentioned. And I do want to elaborate on that a little bit. So we always think of pseudomonas otitis being very difficult to treat, you know, getting resistant really quickly being one of the probably the leading causes of going to something like Atika. Um, you already alluded to this a little bit, but I want to expand for maybe people who are not as familiar with things like biofilms. Why is pseudomonas otitis so difficult to treat and painful? And I think you already touched on this a little bit with the ulcerations, the fact that these gram-negative rods are very ulcerative and that causes a lot of pain. The stenosis of the canal happens very readily and that makes it more difficult to treat. But can you expand a little bit exactly what a biofilm is and why that does make these organisms in particular very, very resistant to medication? Sure. Yeah, I think it's a great point because it is important to communicate that to your clients as well because they are very frustrated. We're frustrated because we can't make it go away and they're frustrated because their pet is in a ton of pain. But these biofilms are almost like a mucoid body armor that the bacteria produce and it's very slimy. They hide out in it. And it makes it difficult for antibiotics and topical cleansing agents to penetrate and reach the site where the bacteria is. Because in order for any antimicrobial to work, it's got to reach the site where the organism resides. So if it is able to camouflage and put some body armor on, then now we can't reach it. So one of the classic things about a biofilm is that it's going to increase our MIC or minimum inhibitory concentration, which is the least amount of antibiotic we need at a site of infection in order to kill an organism. And that resistance mechanism, so a way by which an organism makes it less likely that they're going to die when they see an antibiotic, that makes it really an increased challenge when we're trying to think about how to treat these organisms. Biofilms are not easily disrupted. When I describe it to clients, I talk about it as the mucousy body armor that the bacteria wear. But I also remind them they've probably seen a biofilm before. The inside of a fish tank is a great example, right? Like if we have a fish in a fish tank and we just change the water, but we never wipe physically down the walls on the inside of that fish tank, that slimy biofilm builds up. 
And so that is going to contribute to the dirtiness of the environment for that aquarium. And that's the same in the ear, right? Like we have cleansers, which are helpful to disrupt biofilms, but the reality is physical disruption, touching and removing it um, with instruments of the video otoscope is going to be the most impactful way to get them out of there and then treating the organism at that point. So it doesn't just remake a biofilm. This is why I love the interview podcast so much because I pick up all of these tips of how I can even talk and communicate to clients. I love the fishbowl analysis. I love it, love it, love it. Cause we all know that nasty mucusy layer that forms that we look and we're like, Oh, we haven't cleaned this in a long time. <laughs> I always tell owners kind of like the, the sliminess that happens on like spinach. If it ends up at the back of your oh, refrigerator yeah. too long, but it's not a great analysis. Cause you just throw that away. You don't wipe it off. So I like the fishbowl analysis, but you're right. I think people hear biofilm. They're like, what is that? It's like, th- it's actually all over the place. Like it's in nature. It is bacteria's way to protect itself. Um, kind of expanding onto what you mentioned too. The problem with biofilms is not only does it make it more difficult for, like you said, our topicals to penetrate, which is why certain flushes, which we're going to talk about, can be really important. But also they can, these bacteria, I kind of think of it as their shield as well, but it's like their little protective mechanism that they can communicate with each other too. Mm-hmm. So they can share things like, you know, resistance patterns and what they've learned. And because they're sitting there and talking in this little cohort, The problem too is this biofilm, as it grows and grows and grows, if we don't take care of it, it will actually lodge and kind of transfer to other places too. So as it grows and grows and grows, you get these virulence factors, you get these resistant patterns shared, and then you get like this, you know, clunk, uh, chunk of bacteria and like slime layer that goes to other places of the ear canal and can make it really, really difficult and painful to treat. I think Um, that's a great point too, Ashley, about the sharing resistance genes because, and bringing it back to why cytology is so important. You know, we say pseudomonas smells pungent and rancid and burns your nose hairs, right? But the reality is there's a lot of um, organisms that live in an ear canal that will overgrow concurrently with something like pseudomonas and cytology is important there. But those organisms are all hanging out together. So if pseudomonas is making that biofilm and everyone's congregating together in an area, pseudomonas inherently as a gram negative bacteria has resistance genes, right? It has multi-drug efflux pumps. It has beta-lactamase. Um, it has this biofilm ability and capability. And you're right, like when they, when these all these other organisms all congregate together in a biofilm, they it makes it a lot easier to package up a little DNA and a transposon and share it with a staphylococcus or a streptococcus who might also be chilling in that biofilm together with the pseudomonas. Yeah, it's not just one and done. Like we see plenty of kitchen sink ears, everything but the kitchen yeah. sink, you know, a little bit of some rods, some cocci, some yeast. They're all kind of sitting there causing issues. Um, kind of looking at things like bacterial cultures, because we know in our field, there's a lot of debate over the usefulness of things like bacterial culture sensitivities. Between bacterial culture sensitivities, you know, PCRs, there's microbiome tests that are out there now too. When you see cytology, you see lots of rods, you're suspecting that we could be dealing with something, you know, like a pseudomonas. Do you utilizing any of those tests? What's your kind of um, thought process with that? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think you could ask five dermatologists this question. We probably all have different answers. But I mean, when it comes to culture, I always like to sit back and think about what what am I going to do with that information? So what is it telling me and what's my plan to utilize that information? So when we culture an ear canal and we get some numbers back 
and some R's and S's and I's, right? So that's telling us that this organism has grown. It names our organism like Pseudomonas or Staphylococcus or, or whoever, and then test against some antibiotics and tell us if it's susceptible or resistant. But when we are testing against these antibiotics, we're actually testing for the minimum inhibitory concentration expected in plasma. So this would be assuming that I am treating this infection systemically with an oral or an injectable antibiotic, which is very different than how we classically treat these infections. We treat them topically. And when we treat them topically, we are 100 to 1,000 times the concentration of the antibiotic at the site of infection. Because you think about it, if I give um, an antibiotic by mouth in rifloxacin, for example, it is going to be broken down, make it into the plasma, get into the tissue, and eventually make it to the ear canal at a much, much, much lower concentration than the pill that I administered. Versus if I took enrofloxacin topically, I will get 100% of the concentration that I put into the ear canal is right there where the organism is. So when we think about a culture and a susceptibility panel, it's not always necessarily going to predict what the actual environment is in the ear where we have a thousandfold the concentration of enrofloxacin. Therefore, perhaps we can overcome that resistance profile because we just have such a high concentration of antibiotic at the site of infection. And we have some data out there that does look at that, um, but that's very little. And right now, you know, that always is that big controversy what are, what are we utilizing culture and susceptibility test results for? And just because it says it's resistant on that piece of paper doesn't necessarily um, translate into what's going to happen in an ear canal when you're applying a high concentration of antibiotic to it. But if you're going to treat systemically, yes, I think cultures can be very impactful. If you have otitis media, for example, um, that would be a really good moment when we do need to know who is in there, what antimicrobials can I use, um, because I do plan to use a systemic along with my topical intervention as well. There are some dermatologists and veterinarians out there who feel like, well, you know, you're going to get a better drug penetration into the ear canal when it's really erosive and ulcerative, like what we do see with pseudomonas. And so maybe there is some value in swab culturing external eroded ulcerated ear canal if you are planning to use a systemic drug. But I think it kind of comes back to the what is my treatment plan and how does this diagnostic change that treatment plan? If your treatment plan is topical only, then perhaps a culture doesn't truly change that plan. But if your plan is a systemic drug, then yes, there can be value in a culture. But a culture is not perfect either, right? It's a Petri dish. That's not what's happening in the body. Um, it's like what one to 3% of bacteria in the world can actually be cultural, cultured. So there's probably lots of bacteria that could be in that ear. And we know that they are because from next genomic sequencing and PCR data, um, we're not able to culture everything that might be contributing to that infection is the reality. So we're relying on cytology and clinical um, knowledge and skill set, right, when we're interpreting these, these tests and making plans for our patients. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think for a lot of us, you're right, you asked five dermatologists, We there's like big debates over bacterial cultures in the ear. Um, and I'm very similar to the mindset of you 
Um, it can, you know, there's two parts to a culture, right? There's the culture, speciation, there's a sensitivity panel. So there, we do know there's other rods that can form in the ear canal, you know, for example, like proteus. So it, it can be beneficial. And we are seeing other tests come up besides cultures like PCRs, microbiome tests. And I think as we get more literature and data there, you know, we are seeing some shifts to maybe using some of those. Um, but like you said, none of these tests are perfect. So we have to be able to think about why am I doing this? And I think, you know, when I when I first started my residency, you'd be like, oh my goodness, there's a ton of rods in the ears I have to culture. And I've definitely changed my way of thinking because of everything you mentioned that, you know, if they haven't been on a ton and it's like just a lot of rods in the ear, I may have a really good chance if I flush that ear appropriately, if I use the right products, which we're going to talk about, if I take care of that biofilm, if I have a committed owner, if I control the perpetuating factors like stenosis, we may be able to totally treat this topically and we might not need systemic therapy. But of course, we do get those difficult ears that have failed just topical treatment, you know, really have, they have been done, the work has been done appropriately, and they're just still not responding. And we feel like because of either otitis media, which we're going to talk a bit about videotoscopy, or like really terrible deep horizontal ear canal disease, that's ulcerative, we feel like we do need to use something systemic. I completely agree with you. That tends to be where I reach for it more. It is not just, oh my goodness, there's a ton of rods, I have to culture this. Because cultures, like you said, they're not perfect. They're not cheap. Dealing with dermatologic disease is not inexpensive. So we really want to make sure we're utilizing our owner's finances in a way that makes sense for the case that's in front of us. And that's why protocols are awesome in dermatology, but they're not 100% black and white, right? Like Mm -hmm. there's going to be so many variables between cost, what the owner can do, what the patient will allow us to do, what's the history of that pet, what have they been on, has anything worked, why is the pseudomonas otitis there in the first place? You know, if it's a rip-roaring like mass that's sitting in the ear, you can treat it all day long. If we don't get that mass out of there, it's never going to fully resolve probably or be really difficult to do that versus a dog who, you know, has a first-time ear infection because they're food allergic and if we actually get them on the appropriate diet, they could do very well. So yes, everything you mentioned, there's so many variabilities to all of this stuff. Um, going to deep ear flushing. So you mentioned biofilm, breaking that up, middle ear cultures in general, like with videotoscopy or deep ear flushes, what's the value you see in them? Are you doing it for every potential pseudomonas otitis case that walks in the door? How often are you guys utilizing deep ear flushes or videotoscopy for these cases? Yeah. I mean, of course we see a bias group of referred patients, right? These horrible chronic ears. Um, so we do a lot of deep ear flushing. We have the benefit of also having a CT uh, scanner in our building, in our facility, which we utilize quite a good bit. But even if you don't have one of those in practice, right, if you look in an ear canal and you see that white, sticky, puffy, I don't know, it looks like that marshmallow cream stuff that you can add to the yeah, top marshmallow of your fluff. A marshmallow fluff. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. If there's marshmallow fluff in the ear canal, <laughs> that's biofilm. Um, And you can see that with your own two eyes. Uh, So, you know, I think that's something that's really important. And if you see that, that's a great time that you talk to the clients and say, look, this is a huge complicating factor for us. This is going to make it very challenging if we just put medicine in your pet's ear and by mouth, we probably won't get ahead of this. We have to disrupt and clean that ear canal out for you, which requires either heavy sedation or general anesthesia to do if we're talking about deep ear flushing. So we do it a very, very good bit. And we are very quick to recommend that. Um, Again, because these are chronic ear infections and we know once a biofilm sets in, 
we are going to struggle, struggle, struggle. So physically getting as much of it out as we can and then jumping ahead. And we'll do, talk about that in a moment with some unique products that might help to disrupt what we couldn't residually get out and prevent more from forming. That's going to be important. But if you don't first clean, you're not going to get ahead of it, right? Biofilm also is what's on your teeth. And that's why we brush our teeth all the time. And if we don't, then it turns into like this dense plaque to tartar that then you've got to get that ultrasonic scaler out for, right? So that's our deep ear flush. We've got to get in there. We've got to get that thick built up material out physically and then send that cleaner ear home for a client to hopefully be more successful with our outcomes when we do treat it topically and maybe systemically as well. Yeah. And, and the other benefit of if we're able to do videotoscopy and the reality is not all these cases are going to be able to, for various reasons, they, mm-hmm. you don't have one in your practice. Um, you're not able to refer to a dermatologist. They will not, the owner will not go for a referral. Um, whatever the reason is, I agree with you. There's still a lot of really good ear flushes we can do without the use of VO if we need to. The benefit, if we can get them to re- to refer for videotoscopy, is not only getting a deep ear flush in the external canal, but a lot of times we do see with pseudomonas otitis that the tympanic membrane ruptures. And so then, as Dr. White mentioned, we could potentially sample for middle ear culture, which is really the preferred way for us to treat otitis media is systemic therapy based on a middle ear culture, not just an external ear culture, because we do know those can be totally different resistant patterns. Um, Lots of studies have shown that. Um, But also we can flush that middle ear out, which you're going to have limitations with, which you don't have something like a videotoscopy and tools that will get all the way down there. Um, but then also we can kind of try to figure out why, right? Like sometimes I think of videotoscopy as an exploratory for the ear. So we're going in and we, I've been shocked before where I've been Mm -hmm. like, I am hundred percent going to find a mass. I thought I saw a mass. And then when I get in with my VO, I'm like, oh, that was just a huge, like cerumidolith. There's no mass down there. You know, oh, I thought I would get something out of the middle ear, you know, oh, actually, I thought I'd do a myringotomy and a mass would pop out or a bunch of fluid would pop out and it didn't, which is why obviously advanced imaging like CT ahead of time, if you're able to, can be helpful. But, you know, we don't have a CT right in our in our facility. So we refer out for those if owners are willing to, but sometimes for various reasons, they can't um, do a CT and we will go in and kind of do an exploratory. So it also can be helpful in that aspect too. Now you mentioned, and I really want to talk a lot about this because sometimes we get asked, well, I just want one or two ear flushes in my clinic. Like, what should I carry? And mm-hmm. I would say, oh man, you got to give me at least like four. I can give you so <laughs> many different reasons. Like you need a sermonolytic, you need, you know, something better for yeast that's going to change the pH. You need uh, something that has uh, some other medications, which I'm sure we'll talk about. So focusing on pseudomonas otitis. We know the biofilm is problematic, so flushing is going to be super important. But beyond the mechanical method of flushing and breaking up that debris, can you talk to a few different products that can be really, um, and there's lots of products out there and we can't carry all of them, but products you enjoy or certain ingredients you'd be looking for if you do see a lot of rods underneath the microscope? Yeah. So, you know, if you're talking about a product that's going to do a really nice job of breaking down debris physically... Um, we like to use products that have squalene in them. So that like cerumene, um, clearotic have squalene in them. It's a very oily substance and it helps to break down oily debris. 
which can be really nice if you have chunks of biofilm deep in the canal and you want to even just do a standing ear flush in an awake patient, right? If you have a good patient and not a super ulcerated ear canal, not a real painful ear canal, you can do that awake sometimes where you put the product in, let it reside in the canal for about 10 to 15 minutes and then come back and just really flush it out with saline um, or even water sometimes, just some like lukewarm water and really flush out any residual debris. So using those products to break down wax, break down biofilm um, so that when you flush behind it with something like saline or clean water, it just is going to fly right out, right? So this is a, I don't have a video otoscope way to get about um, cleaning out some of these canals. I don't like to send those really oily products home with clients too much because it is important after they go in that they come back out again, that we do that secondary flush to remove the product. Um, if we don't and you let it, your canal stay super oily, it can get macerated and contribute to your issue. For pseudomonas products that I would send home with clients. So uh, Triz EDTA containing products are really nice. Triz EDTA is an active ingredient we find in a lot of different ear products, even topical products that are shampoos and sprays, for example. And the way that product works is it chelates the cellular membrane in the bacterium, which just means it makes a bunch of the minerals co you know, stick together. So holes form in the cell membrane and that will result in cell death. So the cleaner itself is helping us kill the organism. And when we poke holes in the organism, any antibiotic that now we're putting into the ear canal can actually make it intracellularly and be a little bit more effective as an antimicrobial for us. So we do tend to reach quite commonly for products that contain TRIZDTA as ear flushes in these pseudomonas cases. Another really common thing, um, active ingredient that I would look for in a product would be N-acetylcysteine. And you'll find that in a couple of different products. N-acetylcysteine, we think about that like when you've got mucusy buildup in your respiratory tract, right? Like mucinex, for example. Um, but N-acetylcysteine classically has been used as a mucolytic agent for pneumonias and respiratory tract and inflammation but we found topically that it also works as a mucolytic agent. So, you know, in the past when I didn't have a product on the shelf, I would actually compound that. But now we do have some products that have N-acetylcysteine in them, which are available in the United States. Um, and so we really will add that in adjunctively, either as a cleanser or as like a couple times um, a week application to help break those biofilms down. But those are the big things that we're trying to do. Like, what is the issue of pseudomonas? One, it makes that stinking biofilm. We can't make it go away. So we need to use a product to disrupt that. And then two, they are gram-negative organisms, which are inherently resistant. So if I can use a cleaner that physically disrupts the pseudomonas bacterium to help me with my antibiotics to be more effective, like Trizidy TA, then I'm going to reach for that. So those are honestly, if I had to choose three kind of things that I think about with pseudomonas, it'd be products similar to that. Yeah. I totally agree with you about not sending the squalene products home. I also love them in clinic. I have once uh, had a sample and used it on my own allergic pit boxer mix at home. And I was like, oh, <laughs> it was like yeah. so oily, but it is amazing. So same, like if I have, I go to do a VO, this happened to me two days ago and there's just so much stuff built up and I was having a hard time even breaking it up with my you know, my uh, tools through the VO, 
we put clear otic in there and let it sit for a while, kind of rub the ear canal. And it was amazing how much it came up. But I agree. I don't love to send those ones home as thermolytics just because of the oiliness and even the client satisfaction because of the oiliness, but they're amazing in-clinic products. Mm-hmm. But Triz EDTA and N-acetylcysteine, I think all of us can agree, are really great products because of everything you mentioned, helping our penetration of right antibiotics, helping to kill the bacteria itself. Um, both of those ingredients to some degree being antibiofilm, which obviously we've talked about how important that is. So many different products. Um, you know, Decra obviously has a ton of Triz products. Mm-hmm. Triz on its own, Triz Ultra with Keto, if you have, you know, a little friend of yeast that's coming along for the ride. Then you mentioned um, N-acetylcysteine, at least the product that we've utilized um, that's been in Europe for a while and has finally come to the U.S. I think the last year maybe is mm-hmm. Triznac by Nexmune mm-hmm. or ICF. Um, so that one's been a really nice option to have because just like you mentioned, we were compounding N-acetylcysteine on our own for a long time. That became actually more and more difficult as far as backorder issues, at least for us, we were having hard times finding it. So that is why as dermatologists, it's really hard for us to say, here's one or two ear products you can have. Because if I have just a ear full of, you know, some cerumen and it's not cerumen and it's not really causing a lot of infection, I'm going to send home something way different than if I have a nasty biofilm pseudomonas ear. Correct. So yeah. we have to know why we're having owner's flush. And don't be afraid to tell them why you need them to switch products. I will always try to work with the owner. Like if they're like, I have five-year flushes at home. It's like, great. Do you know what you have? If not, send me a picture. Can we look at your old receipts? Because if we can utilize something you have, I'm super happy to do that. But if I don't feel like what you have at home is going to be effective for this particular problem, this is why, say, one of those Trace EDTA products is really important. But we can come back to those. So that could just be really beneficial because I think it shows owners were really trying to work with what they have because I could understand why it would be frustrating to have so much stuff at home that we just keep changing. Mm-hmm. But if you take the time to explain it, a lot of times people are really open to it, especially if you are talking about a very difficult problem like pseudomonas. Sure. Um, now, here's the big question I always feel like I get asked when talking about pseudomonas otitis. What topical antibiotic? So, you know, <laughs> let's let's assume we are not, again, like as you mentioned, we can't really base culture results for topical direction with the antibiotics because of the higher concentration we get. Mm-hmm. But what are, and let's say we have an owner who can't culture for various reasons even. Like just say like it's a suspected pseudomonas. Financially, the owner can't culture. They're going to use an ear flush product like what we kind of mentioned, maybe one of the Triz products, hopefully. What would you be potentially reaching for with those limitations? Yeah. So, you know, I think most of the time what we reach for first is a fluoroquinolone. Uh, Fluoroquinolones are very potent. They do really well in a purulent environment, which almost always these ears are like goober gobbers pus is just pouring out of them. Um, They're going to work intracellularly as well. So they're going to get inside of the white blood cells um, and really do a good job of helping us to kill that pseudomonas. But pseudomonas can be inherently resistant to fluoroquinolones. And we know that primarily when we're talking about systemic administration, right? But topically, fluoroquinolones are probably the one that we reach for first. Additionally, fluoroquinolones are one of the products which are not thought to be ototoxic. And so, so often, you know, you've got this chronic ear, this chronic pseudomonas ear has been going on more than two months over half those patients have otitis media as well. And maybe that's because there's a rip or a tear in the eardrum. 
Um, and so we want to be cognizant of that and try to make sure we're thinking about products that if, let's say, we couldn't see an eardrum or we you know for a fact it's not there, um, that we're going to use a product that's pretty safe. Now, aminoglycosides technically should be effective against pseudomonas as well. They do have that concern around ototoxicity, though there are some studies out there that show that maybe it's okay to use some of these aminoglycosides, um, even without a tympanum intact. But we do think about that. The other issue with aminoglycosides is they do not perform as well in a very purulent environment, which is what pseudomonas creates. You get that really acidic purulent environment, and that can uh, break down and deactivate our aminoglycoside antibiotics, things like gentamicin, neomycin, amikacin. So while maybe it truly is effective, the environment in the ear canal deactivates the antibiotics, so now it can't actually do its job. Um, polymyxin B is thought to be pretty effective, I think, as well against pseudomonas. It's not one I reach for first. Like I'm always tending to reach for the fluoroquinolones first. Um, but I would say, you know, if you think about if we had to narrow it down to some of the ones that should work, those categories of drugs should work. But then remember, it's not as easy as it should be effective because what is the environment of the ear and is it still effective considering that as well? Yeah. And those are the three that I kind of consider too, um, when I'm looking at some of these cases, as far as suspecting pseudomonas or guiding my topical treatment plan. Um, and you know, the whole aminoglycoside ototoxicity, definitely, of course, that is something we know has been reported and can be a risk. Um, you know, I've even had, I mean, anything technically in the ear could be ototoxic though. We do feel like certain things are generally safe. What I always kind of say is if I have, say they've fail to fluoroquinolone, they're not responding as well. And I do feel like we're going to move to an aminoglycoside. One, that is why flushing can be so, so, so important because of everything you just mentioned. And I mean, sometimes depending on how bad the ear is, it could be every other day, you know, that we're having them flush out, maybe even daily for a period of time because of what you mentioned. The fact that we do know some of these antibiotics tend to be deactivated if there's purulent debris there, aminoglycosides being one of them. So we really want to flush that stuff out so that we get better penetration of the antibiotic on that epithelium of the ear canal so it can actually work. Um, Some of the aminoglycoside ones, so say like Momentumax, I think also can be helpful because it has a pretty potent topical steroid in it. Mm -hmm. And then we're going to talk about systemic medications we may have to use in these cases. Um, If I see a ton of inflammatory cells, sometimes if they're painful or ulcerative and the fluoroquinolone's not working, that's why I'll reach for them. I do explain to owners the risk of ototoxicity, hearing loss being something I want them to watch for. But what I always kind of teach too is the flip side is pseudomonas is ototoxic. You know, if it sits yeah. there long enough, it's going to cause problems. Yeah. So I think we have to be cautious for sure. But I also don't want general practitioners to be so scared to use medications for these really bad bacteria that the bacteria itself ends up being problematic, causing calcification and being ototoxic. So I totally agree with everything you're saying, but I just like to provide some relief that, you know, we do have some small studies showing that things like genomycin maybe aren't as ototoxic as Mm -hmm. I just remember in vet school being like, the fear was put in me like, these are ototoxic, (laughs) they're going to be terrible. And like, the reality is I use them a lot. There could be subclinical hearing loss I never know of, right? Like we would never know unless you bear tested them a bunch of times if it's causing sure. subclinical hearing loss. But just don't be so nervous if things are not working to let the pseudomonas not be treated appropriately. Right, exactly. And I think what you mentioned about cleansing is important. So if, especially if you do choose aminoglycoside to make sure owners are cleansing enough, 
Um, I do like to ask my clients if they're able to go to their veterinary practice, their GP practice, at least once a week and allow their family vet to do one of the cleansings for them. Because the reality is what we can accomplish in a vet clinic thoroughness wise when it comes to ear cleansing is so much better than probably what the clients are doing at home for a lot of different reasons. Um, And so utilizing your vet team and a lot of dermatologists asking our GP partners to please help by doing that part can be effective as well to get that dog um, getting better a little bit faster. And if the dog is a little painful, another trick that you can try is actually taking injectable lidocaine and diluting it in saline and putting it into the ear canal, almost like a cleanser or flush, just kind of holding it there as long as the dog will tolerate it, let it numb the skin. And then that might help um, facilitate just standing awake ear flushes if you're not able to sedate a patient for some reason. Oh, I love that tip. I've never, you've never even thought about that. Yeah. Again, that's why I like love the interview. One. I just <laughs> like learn so much stuff for myself that I want to try now. Um, okay, let's go to systemic therapy as we have, a, I just have a couple more questions for you. So systemic therapy, talking about, you know, you've already talked a little bit about letting culture maybe guide your systemic therapy if you're going to reach for it as far as antibiotics go. Maybe just in general, it's probably going to be very similar to what you mentioned for topical, you know, when you decide to go for systemic antimicrobials, and then also can you speak on the anti-inflammatory aspects of what we want to think about systemically or pain, anything basically that we would treat systemically for these pseudomonosotitis cases? Yeah, great point. So I, I am of the group and camp where I tend to only use systemic antibiotics if it is otitis media. Otherwise, I really do strong, try really strongly to use topical approaches to treating otitis externa, even when it is pseudomonas. Um, though, you know, I have been swayed a time or two you know, with a really ulcerative external ear. But I think for the most part, I'm waiting, use, using culture and susceptibility and treating with a systemic antibiotic when it is otitis media component. Um you will find a lot of these cases to be multi-drug resistant. It is a bug which is multi-drug resistant. Oftentimes a fluoroquinolone will work, especially if the patient hasn't already had a systemic fluoroquinolone. Um, So most of the time that could be something, you know, if you're feeling like you can't wait on a culture and you need to empirically treat while the culture results are returning to you, um, the fluoroquinolone option could be a good one. But because pseudomonas is inherently resistant, if you do choose to treat systemically with antibiotic, whether that's external ulcerative otitis externa or otitis media, please get a culture um, because it is resistant. It is We know that about the organism. Uh, sometimes amicacin is an option, but again, I wouldn't deliver a highly toxic antibiotic to a patient. Um, like amicacin without a culture that says that that's a good choice. When it comes to thinking about the other components, the pain, the ulcers, inflammation, these patients need steroids. Uh, This is what they are lacking. And, you know, other medications out there in the market just can't touch the ulceration that we see. We need to really hit the immune system back pretty hard. And I um, am not shy when it comes to dosing steroids in an ulcerative pseudomonas ear. So you're going to see me reaching for bigger doses. Um, if this were a dog, for example, and we're choosing prednisone, I'm going to probably start out that first week at 1.5 upwards of two mg per kick per day. You know, we're not we're not joking around. This is really painful. We have to suppress the immune response to stop the ulceration. 
um, and then we can back off pretty quickly. So, you know, one or two weeks of that high dose and then start your tapering down. But please make sure that that's a, a good patient, a patient who doesn't have comorbidities, which contraindicate using steroids, especially high dose steroid. Um, but other medications, you know, that maybe I might think about adding in the mix from an anti-inflammatory standpoint would be something like Atopica or Cyclosporin. So if you have a case which is just this chronic ear, um, you know it to be an allergy cause, maybe there's a lot of fibrosis and thickening of the canal, I'm going to, you know, get the patient through the first couple of weeks with topical antibiotics, systemic steroid administration, get them feeling a little better. And then we're going to add in cyclosporin to the mix because we know that that can be a really effective drug from a long-term maintenance standpoint um, to help control the allergic component to that disease without having to be reliant forever on a steroid. Um, and that kind of combination can be quite effective to manage your ears. I do use gabapentin as well a pretty good bit at the beginning in these patients because they have a lot of exposure of their nerve endings. We don't know how much gabapentin really truly helps from a pain standpoint, but we're limited with any other option for a pain med. We cannot give them an NSAID because we're selecting a steroid systemically in these patients. We cannot send opioids home with clients uh, because of opioid uh, epidemic issues. So really gabapentin, we utilize that quite a good bit as well. Yeah, a couple things. So bouncing off is that I want to just emphasize um, one, when I see a lot of these cases come in because of the pain and some of the pain guidelines actually do mention using NSAIDs, they mm -hmm. come in on NSAIDs. And what I think, I mean, almost every dermatologist, at least that I've talked to and myself included say, these need steroids, these yeah. need steroids, these need steroids, these need steroids. <laughs> so, you know, you can, and for various reasons, not only to control like the inflammation and, and hurt, even though we don't think of steroid as a pain medication, honestly, because you relieve that inflammation, I honestly think it ends up indirectly helping with a lot of that discomfort and pain. But also remember that a lot of times these cases are very stenotic and your topical treatments having a heck of a time getting into that deep horizontal ear canal. So you're kind of getting the benefit of comfort, but also opening up that ear canal so you can treat it better with your topical therapy. Um, and I agree. And then the other thing I want to emphasize, because I totally agree, don't be wimpy with your steroid dose. You know, like you said, as long as there's no comorbidities or concerns, these are not ones that, if, especially if they're very stenotic, and I know that not all pseudomonasotitis cases are created equal, but you don't want to just send them home and like 0.25 mg per keg. Like, do not be afraid. You want to be in that anti-inflammatory, if not tinkering on the edge of immunosuppressive dosing, short term, like you mentioned. But it's amazing what, you know, and I'm the same. Like, I'm probably somewhere in that 2 mg per keg, a little under 2 mg per keg range for those first at least like five days, seven days, mm -hmm. just to open that up. Of course, forewarn owners about the side effects of steroids. If they're really sensitive, have them get a hold of you. But it is so important. And sometimes if they're really stenotic and swollen, I actually won't have the owners treat topically for a few days because those dogs or cats, occasionally cats get pseudomonasotitis too, they learn very quickly to be head shy, to not want the owners by them. So please, if they're super painful, if you're going to use systemic therapy for antimicrobials, you could do that or just give them steroids for a few days and then have them start the topical therapy because we have to know that this is going to be something we have to treat more for a while. So we want to assure that the pet will allow us to do that. So those are just things I thought were really, really important that you mentioned. 
The last thing is looking at underlying causes or primary causes. So in the end, we also have to come back, take a step back and think about why did this happen? You know, we can get through a tough pseudomonas otitis, but if we don't know why and we don't address that, then we're going to risk it coming back or we're not going to fully resolve it. So what are some of the main causes you see of pseudomonas otitis? Um, and I know this is open-ending and really anything can cause pseudomonas otitis that would affect the skin. Um, mm -hmm. But what are some of the main things that you really think of with these cases? I would say if I had to narrow it down to the top two, it would be allergies is number one and tumors is number two. Yeah. So, um, and that's dogs and cats, of course. But we, of course, I feel like with kitty cats and ears, we don't see so much horrible otitis externa. If you see a really bad otitis externa in a cat, you should really be thinking more towards a tumor, especially mm -hmm. a unilateral case or otitis media, right? That maybe they had an upper respiratory tract infection, got a little otitis media, and it got boogers, got stuck back there, right? Now we've got an otitis externa. Dogs are different. Dogs, I would say, in the lineup, allergy first, tumor second. Um, and all of the allergies could really do it, but primarily atopic dermatitis from environmental causes and food allergens are going to be your top two. Flea allergy, you know, it's kind of a weird place for a flea allergy to cause an issue. So probably more, more than anything, it's environmental allergens and maybe food allergens as well. Uh, but getting to the bottom, like you said, what is it that's causing this? We have all these like tips and tricks for how quickly do we need to do backstrokes in the deep end of an allergy workup, you know, with a patient that's coming in for otitis. If it's a routine acute otitis you know, some rods, some cocci, some yeast, you treat it, it goes away. Months pass by, another one pops up, you know, once or twice a year. Please don't push those clients too much to do an allergy workup unless, of course, they want to. But if you have a case ever that comes in that's one of these horrible pseudomonas cases, that single singular event is enough to do your backstrokes in the deep end of an allergy workup. You know, we don't need to let that happen ever again, because the consequences of that financially, well-being to the client and the patient, and then um, long-term side effects from the type of damage that can occur with a horrific pseudomonas infection is not worth ignoring the primary condition, so to speak. So if you have a pseudomonas case, really, you know, jump towards coming back to that medical history, digging back through your medical records because clients can't really ever remember. If you ask if they're itchy, they're going to say no. Um, but if you look back in your medical record to see, let me just go back and see if they ever came in for otitis or pyoderma or licking their feet in a cytopoint injection. And then look to see what times of year they're doing that. Does this feel seasonal or non-seasonal? Can I real quick say this is environmental associated or is it non-seasonal and I need to think about something like a food trial? Um, but we're, you know, a bad pseudomonas here right away. We're going to be thinking about what is the cause for this and um, getting to the bottom of that. Yeah, definitely. I mean, allergies and ear tumors, like you said, definitely tend to be the top things that we know can lead to these bad pseudomonas cases really technically anything that could cause a pyoderma. So I, I always mention one of the worst pseudomonas otitis cases I had was a pemphigus dog, right? I mean, they're still like, it was crusted all over, it was scratching, it was itching. I've seen hypothyroidism still do it. So there are other things if your allergic workup doesn't make sense or they're not showing other symptoms or they didn't have ear infections until they were 12 and they don't respond to a diet trial or, or anything like that. The other last thing I want to end on is remember 
what is reversible and what is not reversible. Meaning if you palpate that ear canal and it is hard as a rock, then they really should be seeing a surgeon if they are able to, because that we cannot reverse. And pseudomonas cases absolutely will do that. They will do it quickly, especially if you think about some of our breeds like the Cocker Spaniels or the English Bulldogs. It's like you look at them wrong, they calcify. You know, I mean, I've had them from the beginning and I've done everything I thought was right and they still calcified. So some of these, they you lose the battle, unfortunately, even when you do feel like you're doing things right. But just remember that one, we can reverse stenosis, we can reverse edema, but we cannot reverse calcification. So you are just going to spend a lot of effort, time, and money if they're hard as a rock, whereas we could just take care of the problem by going to surgery if the owner is able to do that. Um, and with that, Amelia, you have made it to the end of your first episode of the Dermbet Podcast. Um, I thank you so much for your time. This was amazing. I know that this is a topic that is going to get a lot of traction just because it is a very difficult thing. Um, but I really appreciate your expertise on teaching us how to treat some of these really difficult pseudomonas otitis cases. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. So again, I want to thank Dr. White for being on the podcast. If you have other ideas for good podcast topics or other speakers that could be on the podcast, please feel free to reach out, especially on Instagram, the Derm Vet, because um, I just want to make sure I'm continuing to give you really good quality content to make your dermatology cases more fun, rewarding, and we can help more pets.